Hi, I'm Kay Ray, and this is my podcast, Kay Ray Reads to You. We're reading a wonderful book called The Saturdays by Elizabeth Enright, and it's time for Chapter 2, Saturday 2. Of course Father said yes, but he had certain conditions which they already knew by heart. They were the same ones he had imposed when they started going to school by themselves. Don't get run over, he said. That's the first and most important rule. Look where you're going, and watch the lights when you cross the street. This applies to Randy in particular, who believes too often that she's walking in another world, a safer, better one. It's the people who make the safety on this earth, as well as the trouble, unfortunately. Father glared at the newspaper that lay on the floor beside him. Sometimes I think the golden age must have been the age of reptiles. Well, anyway, let me see what I was saying. Oh, yes, Randy and the lights. And another thing, if you get lost or in trouble of any kind, always look for a policeman. Sooner or later you'll find one, and he'll know what to do, and don't hesitate to ask him, even if he's the traffic cop at 42nd and 5th, with buses breathing fire on every side. Let's see, what else? Don't talk to strangers, Randy prompted him. Yes, that's right. Don't talk to strangers, unless you know by looking at them that they're kind people, and even then think twice. Be home no later than quarter to six, and Randy had better make it five. He picked up his newspaper and flapped it open. That's about all. Oh, one last thing. See that you do something you really want, something you'll always remember. Don't waste your Saturdays on unimportant things. Yes, that's one of the rules, Mona told him. Is it? Good. Then go with my blessings. Then they went to Cuffy, who naturally said yes, too, but not as if she cared for the idea. Well, I hope it's all right, I'm sure. Seems to me like you're pretty young to be kiting all over a big city by yourselves, and one at a time, too, not even together. Don't you get run over now. They couldn't help laughing at that. All grown-ups had learned the same set of precautions, apparently. "'And it's nothing to giggle about, neither,' said Cuffy severely. "'I don't want nobody run over, nor nobody lost, so's we have to have the police out after em. "'I suppose I can't keep you from getting a little lost once in a while. "'It'd be against nature, but not so lost that we have to get the police out after you.' "'Good old Cuffy. "'It was that sort of thing that made them love her so much.' "'If you do get lost,' she continued, "'you can always go up and ask—' "'A policeman!' shouted Mona and Randy and Rush in unison. "'Do you think it's polite to take the words right out of people's mouths?' inquired Cuffy, pretending to be offended. "'And another thing.' "'Don't talk to strangers!' they cried. "'Well,' said Cuffy, giving up, I can't say much for your manners, but I'm glad to see you've got the right ideas, at least. What about strange policemen, said Rush, looking innocent. Oh, go on with you, out of my kitchen, the whole tribe of you. Cuffy made sweeping gestures with the broom. My patience is worn about as thin as the sole of my shoe. But that wasn't true, and they knew it. Cuffy's patience was as deep as the earth itself. After a brief discussion, it was decided that Randy, as founder of the club, should have the privilege of the first Saturday. For the next five days, she worked feverishly in her school craft shop whenever she got a chance, and by Friday evening she was able to distribute four small pins cut out of copper, 
and each bearing the mysterious name, Isaac. "'Swear on your sacred word of honor never to tell anyone what this pin means,' Randy said to the club members. And they all swore, even Oliver. It was a solemn moment. Saturday dawned much the same as any other day, maybe even a little grayer than most, but when Randy woke up she had the same feeling in her stomach that she always had on Christmas Day. A wonderful morning smell of coffee and bacon drifted up the stairwell from the kitchen, and she could hear a familiar clattering spasm deep in the house, Willie Sloper shaking down the furnace. Mona was still asleep, a mound entirely covered up except for one long trailing pigtail that looked as if it were awake all by itself. Randy lay staring absently at the wall beside her bed where pictures hung at haphazard intervals. She had painted all the pictures herself, and there was a reason for their strange arrangement. The wallpaper was old, and the pictures served to cover up peeled and faded places. They were all drawings of enigmatic-faced princesses and sorceresses. Each had mysterious, slanted eyes, a complicated headdress, and elaborate jewels. Each was posed against a background of palaces, rocks, and dashing waves, or forests with unicorns. "'Don't you ever get tired of drawing Lucretia Borgia all the time?' Rush had asked her once. For a while Randy lay still, just being happy. Then she stretched, stretched, way up and way down. During it she probably grew half an inch. After that she got out of bed, stepping over her bedroom slippers as usual. "'Ow! Is it cold?' Randy complained happily, and closed the window with a crash that drew protesting grumbles from the little mountain range that was Mona. The morning finally went by with Randy pushing it every second. It was awful to sit at the lunch-table while Cuffy calmly insisted that she must eat everything on her plate. Everything. Oh, Cuffy, even my beets? All your beets, replied Cuffy inexorably, and all your squash. Randy looked witheringly at the food on her plate. Beets are so boring, she said. "'the most boring vegetable in the whole world, next to squash.' "'Not so boring as spinach,' said Rush. "'Spinach is like eating a wet mop.' "'That will be enough of that,' commanded Cuffy, "'in the voice that meant no nonsense.' "'At last it was over, even the tapioca, "'and Randy just stopped herself in time "'from remarking that she considered tapioca "'the most boring dessert in the world,' next to stewed rhubarb. Mona came into their room while Randy was changing her dress. "'How'd you like to borrow my ambers?' she asked. "'Ooh, there's a jet flying over my house.' "'How'd you like to borrow my ambers?' she asked. "'Oh, Mona!' Randy was overcome. "'Do you mean you'd let me? Honestly? Oh, I'd be so careful of them. I promise I would.' She felt like a princess in her brown velveteen dress with the amber necklace that had belonged to Mother. "'It's like big lumps of honey,' she said, staring into the mirror. "'Well, don't you lose it now,' admonished Mona, not quite regretting her generosity. "'Have a good time, Ran, and don't forget you have to be back by five. "'I won't,' promised Randy, giving her sister a hug. 
Goodbye. You're swell to let me wear the ambers. She said goodbye to everyone, just as though she were going away for a long voyage. Cuffy gazed at her thoughtfully. You look awful little to be going off by yourself like this, she said. Now remember, don't you get run over and don't. I won't, I won't, cried Randy, quickly running down the steps and waving her blue leather pocket book, in which the dollar and sixty cents rattled wealthily. My, it's a nice day, she thought. Nobody else would have thought so. The sky was full of low clouds, and the air had a damp, deep feeling in it that meant rain after a while. But being by yourself, all by yourself, in a big city for the first time, is like the first time you find you can ride a bicycle or do the dog paddle. The sense of independence is intoxicating. Randy skipped halfway up the block, a leisurely, light-hearted skip, and then she walked the rest of the way, stepping over each crack in the pavement. It was very dangerous. She had to be careful, because if she did step on a crack, she would be turned into stone forevermore. On Fifth Avenue, the big green buses rattled by like dinosaurs. I'm going to walk, though, Randy decided. I'm going to walk all the way and look in all the windows. So that's what she did. The shop windows were wonderful. Woolworth's dime store was just as wonderful as Tiffany's jewelry store, and she reached 57th Street in either a very long or a very short time. She wasn't sure which, because the walk had been so interesting. It was just beginning to rain when she came to the art gallery where the French pictures were being shown for the benefit of war relief. It cost 75 cents to go in, so Randy planned to stay a long time and gave her coat to the doorman. The gallery was hushed and dim after the bright, sharp street. The soft rugs on the floor, the soft, neutral color of the walls, with each picture glowing beneath its own special light, made her feel as if she had walked into a jewel case. "'Catalogue, miss?' said a man at a little desk. His eyeglasses flashed in the dimness. "'Thank you,' Randy said, and took one of the little folders he offered. Then, almost on tiptoe, she stepped into the main room of the gallery. There were a lot of people looking at the pictures, and talking to each other as if they were in church, low-voiced and serious. One of the people she knew, and at sight of her Randy's heart sank. It was old Mrs. Oliphant, the elephant, Rush called her behind her back, who really was old, because she had known father's father way back in the last century. She was a big, tall old lady, with a lot of furs that smelled of camphor, and a great many chains around her neck that got caught on each other. Now and then she came to the Melendies, and once when they had all—whoops! Now and then she came to the Melendies, and once they had all been taken to Sunday dinner at her house when it was raining, and everybody ate too much, and Oliver got sick on the bus going home. She was nice, Randy supposed, but so far away in her oldness and dignity. She hoped Mrs. Oliphant wouldn't notice her. Pretty soon she forgot about everything but the pictures. There was a nice one of a girl in an old-fashioned dress playing the piano. She had a snub nose and a long yellow braid, sort of like Mona, only, of course, it was probably a French girl. If she looked at the picture long enough—whoops! 
If she looked at a picture long enough without being interrupted, Randy could make it come alive sometimes, and now she could almost hear the music the girl in the picture was playing—quite hard music, probably, but played very stiffly, with a lot of mistakes, the way Mona played. "'Marvellous substance!' murmured a hushed voice behind her, and another hushed voice replied, "'Unbelievable resilience in the flesh-tones!' "'Gee whiz!' thought Randy. "'Are they talking about the picture?' And she moved on to the next one, a field all burning yellow in the sunshine. You could tell it was twelve o'clock noon on a summer day, probably July. Randy could nearly smell the heat and hear the locusts in the trees sounding exactly like father's electric razor in the mornings. She was having a good time. She looked at all the pictures, fat ladies bathing in a brook, a girl with opera glasses, apples and pears on a blue plate, a man in a boat, two dead rabbits, and then all of a sudden she came to the picture that was hers, her very own one. Randy was always finding things that belonged to her in a special way, though ownership had nothing to do with it. Now she had found the picture. The catalogue told her that the picture was called The Princess, that it had been painted by someone named Jules Clarion in the year 1881. In the picture a girl about Randy's age was sitting on a garden wall and looking out over an enormous city. She had a solemn little face, her long hair hung to the sash of her old-fashioned dress, and her high-heeled boots were buttoned almost to the knee. Among the potted chrysanthemums at her feet sat a black poodle with a red bow on top of his head. On either side the clipped plane-trees were almost bare, and in the distance the huge city was spread in a dusky web of blue and grey. It was easy to make this picture alive. Randy stared at it fixedly, hardly breathing, hardly thinking, and pretty soon she thought she could smell the mixture of damp earth and burning leaves and smoke from distant chimney-pots. She thought she could hear the hum of the city and the clear voices of children somewhere out of sight. A day had come and gone years ago, and still it was alive. "'I wish I'd known that girl,' Randy thought." She felt a touch on her shoulder that brought her back to her own world with a start. On her shoulder she saw a knuckly black glove, and against her cheek she felt the prickling of camphory fur. "'The elephant, darn it,' thought Randy crossly. "'Just when I was getting right into that picture, too.'" There's an illustration here in the book of Randy standing in front of a big framed picture, and you can see the girl with the poodle in the picture. "'Well, well, why, Mona, dear, what are you doing here?' inquired Mrs. Oliphant, in her deep, cavernous voice, with its faint foreign accent. "'Or is it little Miranda?' "'Miranda,' replied Randy politely, with a smile that was nothing but stretching the corners of her mouth. "'Of course, of course, Mona is the one with the hair,' said Mrs. Oliphant, whacking Randy's shoulder absent-mindedly. "'You seem very interested in this picture, Miranda.' "'I think it's beautiful,' Randy said, "'sloping her shoulder out from under Mrs. Oliphant's hand "'as tactfully as she could. "'It isn't as beautiful as I remembered it,' "'observed Mrs. Oliphant, 
regarding it with a frown. But then I haven't seen it for sixty years, not since I was eleven years old. Eleven years old, repeated Randy. It was impossible that Mrs. Oliphant had ever been eleven. Not since the day it was finished, the old lady explained. You see, I was the girl in the picture. You cried Randy, amazed. Her mouth dropped open half an inch. That's I at the age of eleven, said Mrs. Oliphant, very pleased at Randy's surprise. Not much to look at, was I? I think you looked nice. Randy considered the girl in the picture. Interesting, and, well, nice. I was just wishing I'd known that girl. And how she would have loved knowing you. Sometimes she was very lonely, said Mrs. Oliphant. Unfortunately, she disappeared long, long ago. Randy looked up at her companion's face. What she said was true. The face was so old, crossed with a thousand lines, and the dark, fiery eyes were overhung by such severe black brows that every trace of the little girl she had once been had vanished with the past. What was that big city in the distance? It was Paris, said the old lady with a sigh. Who was the dog? Tartuffe, we called him. He was a selfish old beast and very dull company. Mrs. Oliphant shook her head and laughed, remembering. Then she looked about her questioningly. Who is with you, Miranda? I don't see any of your family. I'm all alone, Randy told her. Alone? How old are you, child? Ten, said Randy. Mrs. Oliphant shook her head again. When I was your age, such a thing was unheard of. My aunts would have fainted dead away at the suggestion. What a lucky girl you are! Randy agreed. Really, I am lucky, she thought. Well, since we are both alone, suggested the old lady, why don't you come with me and have a cup of tea, or an ice cream soda, or a chocolate marshmallow walnut sundae, or whatever you prefer? Randy was beginning to like Mrs. Oliphant very much. I'd love to, she said. Surrounded by an aura of camphor and eau de cologne, and with all her chains jingling, the old lady slept. <laughs> Surrounded by an aura of camphor and eau de cologne, and with all her chains jingling, the old lady swept splendidly from the gallery. Randy followed in her wake, like a dinghy behind a large launch. Outside, the moist air had become moister. A fine mist was driving down. Mrs. Oliphant disentangled an umbrella from her handbag and the tail of one of her furs. When it was opened, the umbrella proved to be extremely large and deep. They walked under it, close together, as under a small pavilion. I've had it for twenty five years, Mrs. Oliphant told Randy. It's been lost once on a bus, twice on railway trains, and once at the London Zoo, but I always get it back. I call it the Albatross. After they had walked a block or two, they came to a large hotel which they entered, and the old lady, having checked the albatross, led Randy to a large room full of little tables, 
gilt chairs, mirrors, and palms in fancy pots. At one end of the room, on a raised platform, there was a three-piece orchestra, piano, violin, and cello. All the musicians looked about fifty years old. A waiter who looked old enough to be the father of any one of the musicians led Mrs. Oliphant and Randy to a table by a long window. After a period of deliberation, it was decided that the old lady would have tea and toast, and Randy would have vanilla ice-cream with chocolate sauce. And, François, bring some petit four also. Parfaitement, madame, said François, creaking agedly away in the direction of the kitchen. Randy did not know what petit four meant, but she did not like to ask. Ah, yes, said Mrs. Oliphant, when she had uncoiled from her layers of furs, taken off her gloves, untied her scarf, and arranged her necklaces. My childhood was a very different thing from yours. Tell me about it, said Randy. Then, please, as an afterthought. Would you like to hear the whole story? Yes, yes, please, the whole story, begged Randy, giving an involuntary bounce on the hard chair. She loved to be told stories. Well, it's a long time ago, said the old lady, before you were born, even before your father was born, imagine it. The garden in the picture was the garden of my father's house in Saint-Germain, near Paris. It was an old house even then, tall and narrow and grey, with patches of ivy. The inside of it was stuffy and dark and full of furniture. When house-cleaning was going on, all the windows were opened, never any other time, and I can remember the smell of it to this day, the mixed odours of cloth and cough-medicine and age. I was the only young thing in the house, even Tartuffe the dog was older than I. My mother had died when I was born, and my father's business kept him in Paris all day, so I was brought up by my aunts and an English governess. They gave me my lessons, too. I was never allowed to go to school. The aunts were all maiden ladies years older than my father. They always wore black, took pills with their meals, worried about draughts, and spoke in quiet, polite voices, except when shouting at Tante Amelia, the deaf aunt, who carried a great curved ear-trumpet, like the tusk of an elephant. Ah, here is the tea. François arranged the feast before them. Petit Four turned out to be the most wonderful little cakes in frilled paper collars, pink and pale yellow and chocolate, with silver peppermint buttons on top. Randy's eyes glittered with such enthusiasm that the old lady was delighted. "'You shall have some to take home to the other children. François, please bring us a boxful of petit four to take home.' "'That will be wonderful,' Randy said, not quite with her mouth full, but almost. "'Please tell me some more.' "'Very well,' said her friend. The English governess was also a spinster, also elderly, her name was Miss Buff Towers, and she was related in some way to an earl, a fact she was very proud of and never forgot. She had long front teeth, the colour of old piano keys, and a huge coiled arrangement of braided hair on top of her head, like an orderly eagle's nest. She was a kind-hearted creature, 
but she knew as much about raising children as I know about raising coatamundis. I'm not even sure what they are. You can see that my life was far from exciting. I knew no children, rarely left my own home at all. If it hadn't been for the garden, I might have gone mad from boredom. This garden was very large, enclosed by a high wall, and shaded by old chestnut trees that bloomed every spring in great cornucopias of popcorn. There was a tiny bamboo jungle, and a summer house with a wasp's nest, and a little lead fountain, and two enormous mossy statues, one of Diana and one of Apollo. At the end of the garden the wall was low enough to permit seeing the magnificent view of the city. In the distance the whole of Paris lay spread out like a map, golden in the morning, blue in the dusk, shining like a thousand fires at night. I spent all the time I could in the garden. I had a swing there and many hiding places for myself, my dolls, and Tartuffe. I used to take my lessons to the wall at the end, looking up from my dull books every other minute to see the city far beyond. I never tired of looking at it and wondering about it. One September evening, when I was eleven years old, I had gone into the garden and was sitting in my usual place on the wall, looking at the city and hoping dinner would be ready soon. I heard steps on the little gravel path behind me and, turning, saw my father and another gentleman, a friend whom he had brought home for dinner. I stood up respectfully and was introduced to Monsieur Clarion. He was a tall man with a brown beard and pleasant eyes. I had a feeling, looking at him, that he was more alive than most people. Your daughter makes me think of the princess in a fairy tale who looks out of her tower at the world, he told my father. Some day I would like to paint her just as she was, sitting on that wall. I was flattered and self conscious, but only for a moment. We mustn't make her vain, Jules, said my father in a stately voice. That plain little face was never meant for art. Dinner, for once, was fun. Monsieur Clarion told jokes and stories, everybody laughed, and each story was repeated in loud brays for Tante Amelia with the greatest good will. I've been making sketches at the carnival down the street, he told me. I can never resist carnivals. This one has a camel and a dancing bear, as well as the usual carousel and fortune tellers. It makes good pictures. You've seen it, I suppose, mademoiselle? He turned to me. No, monsieur, I said sadly. I knew there was a carnival somewhere in the town. Bursts of music had been drifting over the wall all day. But you must see it, monsieur Clarion insisted. It leaves at midnight. I should be happy to take you this evening. Heaven forbid, Jules, said my father with a distressed smile. Gabrielle would come home with smallpox or whooping cough or measles or all three. And so dreadfully dirty, added Miss Buff Towers. Someone might even kidnap her, said my tante Marta, who always expected the worst. It's out of the question, stated my father firmly. For the first time since I was a tiny child, I dared to defy the collective opinion of my aunts, father, and governess. But I want to go, said I, laying down my fork. I want to go terribly. Why can't I? I'll wear gloves 
and not touch anything, I promise. When I come home, I'll gargle. Please let me go. Please, please, please. My father stared at me. Even his eyebrows and mustache looked annoyed. That will be enough, Gabrielle, he said. You never let me go anywhere, I persisted. I've never seen a carnival, or a real live camel, or a dancing bear. I'd like to see something besides just this old house all the time. My father's face was dark as the wine in his glass. Go, he roared, upstairs, immediately, without dessert. And up I went, crying into my sleeve, and hearing above my sobs the turmoil in the dining-room. Monsieur Clarion interceding for me, my father expostulating, and above that the loud, toneless voice of Tante Amelia, saying, "'What's the matter? Why is Gabrielle crying? Why doesn't someone tell me something?' And Tante Marta bellowing into the ear-trumpet, "'Gabrielle has been a very naughty girl!' After I had gone to bed, and Miss Buff Towers had heard my prayers, and wept a few embarrassing tears over my disobedience, I lay in bed very still and straight and angry. Through the closed window I could hear rowdy strains of music. At last I got out of bed, and opened the window which looked out over the garden, and the distant lighted city spread like a jewelled fabric. For the first time I was sorry that my room was not at the front of the house, since then I might have glimpsed the carnival. The music sounded gayer than ever, and I could hear bursts of laughter above the noise. Slowly my anger turned to curiosity and active rebellion. An adventurous flame sprang to life within me. Quickly in the dark I dressed in my oldest dress. Quickly I stuffed the bolster under the blankets, just in case someone should look in. But money! I wanted to ride on the carousel and to see the dancing bear. There were only twenty centimes in my pocket-book, and then I remembered the gold piece. My father had given it to me on my last birthday. At the time I had been disappointed, but now I was glad. I took it out of its box, put it in my pocket with the twenty centimes, and cautiously opened the door to the hall. The fat bronze goddess on the upstairs landing was brandishing the gas-lamp like a hand-grenade. Downstairs I heard my father shout, "'Why don't you move your queen?' and knew that he was playing chess with Tante Amelia. I turned back to my room and closed the door behind me. Nothing was going to stop me now. I went over to the window and opened it again. Aged ivy covered the walls at either side, and, scared to death, in my clumsy, old-fashioned clothes, I reached out among the leaves till I felt a strong stem like a cable, stepped over the iron grill in front of the window, and, with a breathless prayer, began my descent. Very awkward it was, too. I made a lot of noise, and all the sparrows in the ivy woke up and flew chattering away. About six feet above the ground the ivy ripped away from the wall, and down I went with a crash into a fuchsia bush. I sat there listening to my heart, and waiting for the entire household to come out with lanterns. But nothing happened. After an eternity I got up and stole out of the garden. Both the knees had been torn out of my stockings, I was dirty, and my hair was full of ivy twigs, but it didn't matter. 
In less than five minutes I had arrived at the carnival. It was even better than I had hoped, full of crowds and bright lights and noise. The carousel with its whirling painted horses and its music was like nothing I had ever seen before. I rode on it twice, and when I screamed with excitement nobody paid any attention, because they were all doing the same thing. After that I bought a ride on a camel. That took some courage, as I had never seen a camel before, and did not know that they possessed such sarcastic faces. Have you ever ridden on one? Never, said Randy. You must try it some time. It made me a little seasick, but I enjoyed it. Then I went and watched the dancing bear softly rocking to and fro on his hind paws, like a tipsy old man in bedroom slippers. There was too much to see. I was dazzled, and just walked about, staring blissfully. I was fascinated by the fortune-teller's booth. It was really a large wagon with a hooped roof, which you entered by a pair of wooden steps. On one side there was a large placard bearing the words, Zenaida, world-renowned seeress and soothsayer. Advice and prophecy on affairs of business or the heart, palmistry, cards, or crystal, as preferred. On the other side there was a life-sized picture of a dark, beautiful woman gazing into a crystal globe. I hesitated only a moment, then I mounted the steps, parted the flaps of the tent, and entered. Inside the tent was draped with shabby shawls of many colors. Overhead a red glass lantern cast a murky light, and at a small table sat a gypsy woman, glittering and jingling, with earrings, clattering bracelets, and necklaces. She looked almost nothing like the picture outside. She was older, and her fingernails were dirty. I was dreadfully disappointed. "'What do you want, kid?' she said. Her voice was hoarse and rough, as though she had spent her whole life shouting. "'To—to to have my fortune told,' I stammered. "'Got any money?' asked the woman doubtfully, looking at my torn stockings and dirty dress. "'Yes,' I said. "'Let me see it,' she demanded. I brought the gold piece out of my pocket. The gypsy examined it craftily. Then she smiled a wide, delighted smile. One of her teeth was black. "'You must have found that in a well-lined pocket,' said she. At first I did not understand what she meant. Then I was angry. "'I never stole anything in my life,' I told her. "'My father gave it to me for a present.' "'Your father? He is a rich man?' "'I suppose he is,' I said. "'I don't know. I never thought about it. Anyway, I don't think I want you to tell my fortune after all.' Quick as a cat, the gypsy sprang from her chair and barred the entrance. "'Forgive me, mademoiselle,' she wheedled. "'I didn't realize. Your clothes are torn, and you have such a dirty face. Come and sit down. I'll tell you a fortune you'll never forget. Splendid, wonderful things are going to happen to you. I see luck shining all around you.' "'Well, who could resist that? In spite of myself, I was soon seated opposite Zenaida.' my dirty hand in her dirtier one. Before she began to read my palm, she called out in her harsh gypsy voice, Bastien! A young man's face appeared at the entrance, and Zenaida said something to him in a strange language. The young man nodded, looked at me, and burst out laughing. Then he disappeared. 
the gipsy lived up to her word. Never was such a fortune told to a human being. Jewels, lovers, fame, travels into far countries, all were promised to me, and I sat there like a half-wit, believing every word. "'I must go,' I said at last. "'Please take what I owe you out of this.' I gave her the gold piece trustingly. And that, of course, was the last I ever saw of it. "'We will drive you home in the wagon,' said Zanaida, smiling. I could hear Bastian hitching up the horses outside. "'No, thank you,' said I. "'It's not far, only a little way. If you will give me what you owe me, I will go.' I realized that the music had stopped, and a sound of hammering and clattering had taken its place. The carnival was being dismantled. I had been in the wagon for a long time. "'We will take you home,' Zenaida insisted. "'It's almost midnight, and we must be on our way anyhow. Where do you live, and what is your father's name?' Like a fool, I told her. Bastien called to the horses, and the wagon began to move, the red lantern swinging in a slow circle overhead. I was so busy thinking of my glittering future that it was some time before I realized that we must have left my house far behind. When I began asking frightened questions, the gypsy came close to me and grabbed my arm. She told me that I was not going home, but far away, till my father was ready to pay a price to get me back. When I cried and struggled, she called Bastian, and they bound my wrists and ankles, and tied a rag over my mouth. All night I lay on the floor in the dark, feeling the wagon lurch and sway, and hearing Zenaida's snores and Bastian's voice swearing at the horses. I was sick with terror. I remained with the gypsies for three weeks. The first day Zenaida unbraided my hair, took away my shoes and stockings, and dressed me in gaudy rags. She pierced my ears for brass earrings, and, stooping down, picked up a handful of earth and rubbed it across my face. "'There,' she said. "'Now even a gypsy would think you were a gypsy.' "'In spite of her, and in spite of the letter I was forced to write my father during the second week, "'telling him where to leave the ransom money if he wished to see me again, "'I enjoyed many things about those three weeks. "'The wagon, and the travel, and the going barefoot. "'The sound of rain on canvas overhead. "'The noise and smell of the carnival.' a noise of bells and talk and music, a smell of garlic and tobacco and people, and that camel. But the bad things more than overshadowed the good. Zenaida was cruel, and so was Bastian when he got drunk, which was often. One fine day we came to a small town in the Loire district. There was a big cathedral on the square, I remember, that looked huge and disapproving beyond the carnival's tawdry jingling whirl of light and music. When Zenaida was telling fortunes in the wagon, Bastian was supposed to keep an eye on me. I had to stay near the wagon, or run the risk of a bad whipping. But on this particular evening, Bastian, a little tipsier than usual, went to sleep under the wagon with his head on his hat. I saw my chance and wandered away. I had no thought of escape. I was too dirty and dispirited, and I had no money." My sheltered life had taught me nothing of fending for myself, or what to do in an emergency. However, for the moment I enjoyed myself watching the familiar sights of the carnival, and the many unfamiliar faces. Suddenly I saw something that made me gasp. 
standing under a gas-lamp at the outskirts of the crowd was a tall man with a beard. In his hands were a small sketch-book and a pencil. It was Monsieur Jules Clarion, who never could resist a carnival. I ran to him, bleating like a lost sheep. "'Oh, Monsieur Clarion, save me, save me, and take me away from here!' Poor man, he looked horrified, and who can blame him? I had accumulated the dirt of three weeks. "'I don't know any gypsies,' said he. "'How do you know my name?' "'But I'm the princess, don't you remember?' I cried idiotically. And then I explained. "'Good Lord!' he said, horrified. "'I knew nothing about your disappearance. "'I left Saint-Germain early the next morning on a walking tour.' "'He took me back to the house where he was staying, "'and the landlady scrubbed me and gave me clean clothes, "'while he got the police and went back to the carnival. "'But Zenaida must have found out what had happened, "'for the gypsy wagon had disappeared. "'Nobody ever saw it again.' As for me, I was rushed home by train the next day. I was embraced by my haggard father, who was relieved on two accounts, first because of my safe return, and second because the ransom money had never been collected. All my aunts wept over me wetly, and I had to have my hair washed every day for two weeks, but in spite of everything I was glad to be home." When my father begged M. Clarion to tell him how he could reward him, M. Clarion replied, "'Allow me to paint the portrait of your daughter.' So that is how it came about. Later on it was he who persuaded my family to send me to school in England. I went to a convent there for seven years, which, though it would have seemed dreadfully strict to you, was heaven itself, as far as I was concerned.' Mrs. Oliphant opened a pocket-book like a giant clam, extracted some money to pay the bill, and clapped it shut again. "'That's all,' she said. Randy rose slowly to the surface, and emerged from the story dreamily. "'It was wonderful,' she said. "'Things like that never happen to us. We lead a humdrum life when I think about it. It's funny how it doesn't seem humdrum.' "'That's because you have eyes the better to see with, my dear, and ears the better to hear with. Nobody who has them and uses them is likely to find life humdrum very often, even when they have to use bifocal lenses, like me.' It was dark when they came out. The rain had stopped, but the streets were still wet, criss-crossed with reflected light. The shop-windows were lighted, too. In one bright rectangle floated a mannequin in a dress of green spangles, exactly like a captured mermaid in an aquarium. "'I go up, and you go downtown,' said Mrs. Oliphant, when they came to Fifth Avenue. She held out her hand. "'Thank you for coming to tea.' "'Oh, thank you very much for inviting me,' said Randy. "'Could I—would you let me come to see you some day?' The old lady looked pleased. "'Do come, child. Come by all means, and I'll show you the brass earrings Zenaida made me wear. I kept them for luck. I have a lot of interesting things—Javanese puppets, and a poison ring, and a beetle carved out of an emerald, and the tooth of a Tsarina.' "'The tooth of a Tsarina!' cried Randy, stopping dead. "'That's another story, my dear,' said the old lady, exasperatingly. A big brontosaurus of a bus clattered to a pause. 
"'This is mine,' said Mrs. Oliphant, climbing on it and waving her hand. "'Good-bye, Miranda.' Randy crossed the street and boarded a big stegosaurus going the other way. At home she went straight to Rush's room. He was having a peaceful half-hour before dinner reading, with his feet on the radiator and the radio going full blast. A voice that made all the furniture tremble was describing the excellence of a certain kind of hair tonic. "'Are you worried by the possibility of premature baldness?' inquired the voice in intimately confidential tones that could be heard a block away. "'Does it trouble you to see your once-luxuriant hair thinning out?' Randy snapped off the radio. "'You don't have to worry about that yet a while,' she said. Rush looked up from his book. "'Huh? Oh, hello. Have a good time?' "'Wonderful. Guess who I met?' "'Mickey Rooney,' said Rush. "'No, silly. The elephant. Only I'm never going to call her that again.' "'Oh, just the elephant.' "'Rush was disappointed. "'Not just the elephant. She's swell. "'She's a friend of mine now, and I'm going to see her. "'She was kidnapped by gypsies and lived with them for weeks.' "'Recently?' inquired Rush, startled. "'No, no, years ago, when she was a little girl in France. "'I'll tell you about it after dinner. "'And look, she sent you these. "'All of you, I mean.' "'What are they?' said Rush, taking a bite.' "'Pity fours,' said Randy. "'I think it's French. For cakes, probably.' "'Pity fours,' repeated Rush mellowly through chocolate custard. "'Not bad, not bad at all. So she was kidnapped by gypsies, was she? Do you think the L—' "'Mrs. Oliphant would care to have me come along with you when you go calling on her?' "'I know she would,' said Randy. "'And Rush. Let's go soon and often.' That is the end of Chapter 2 of The Saturdays, read to you by me, Kara Schallenberg, also known as K-Ray. You can find my blog at kray.org if you want to leave me a message. Thanks for listening.